You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The James Webb Space Telescope is turning its golden eye on the cosmos. It's the largest, most sensitive telescope we've put in space since the Hubble Space Telescope. But why was it built? Not to make pretty pictures of the sky, although it's certainly doing that, but to answer some of astronomy's deepest questions. How did the universe come to be? And are there planets around other stars that have spawned life? But only recently, relatively recently, have we developed enough understanding as well as the technical ability to answer these questions. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. This is Big Picture Science. We'll be speaking with Webb Telescope researchers, including the scientist who oversees it all. In addition, an astronomer who wants to use this high-tech instrument to answer the profound question of how everything came to be, including you and me. This episode is Web Feet. Decollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself, James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. To the edge of time. Yes, indeed. On Christmas Day of 2021, a rocket lifted off from a clearing in a tropical rainforest in French Guiana. In the nose was the folded up James Webb Space Telescope, our most high-tech advanced space telescope yet. A few days later, it reached its destination, a million miles away in a stable position in the Earth-Moon system called Lagrange Point Number 2. Here it would be parked far enough away from both the Earth and the Moon that the heat of those bodies wouldn't interfere with its operation. And that is necessary because the James Webb Space Telescope is an infrared telescope. Now, any warm object produces an infrared glow. Your body is glowing in infrared right now, and so are galaxies and other cosmic phenomena. And the James Webb Telescope has already gotten its first look at them. In fact, you have probably seen those images as they are all over the web, the other web. Well, we know how excited we were upon seeing those images, and now let's find out what it was like for the scientists who work with the telescope to have seen those images for the first time. 
Hi, I'm Elisa Pagan. I'm a science visuals developer. I work at Space Telescope Science Institute within the Office of Public Outreach. And I'm Nestor Espinosa. I'm a, an assistant astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute. Well, Nestor and Elisa, I want to start with you describing your reactions when you saw the first images produced by the James Webb Space Telescope. So I think the first reaction was just like overwhelmed, emotional, just multiple feelings at once. Um, that like the tie between it being amazed, inspired, overjoyed, and also just really relieved, honestly, that everything happened and got us to this point, essentially, that we can actually see the data and the images. <laughs> Nestor? Yeah, I was mainly amazed. I, I remember the first word that came to my mind when I was in that table was like how lucky I am to be here with all these experts in this table, seeing these beautiful images. The thought afterward was like, I really want to share this with the world, like right now. It was a very human moment. People think it's like science is so, you know, square sometimes. It was very human to be amazed together with this group. Tell us what those first images, what they were images of. What objects were they, Those some of those first images? So we captured nebulae. Uh, there was star-forming regions, which is, was included in the nebulae. We had an exoplanet, which Nestor worked a lot on. He did amazing work on that. Uh, and we had a planetary nebula, so that's a dying star. So that's the end stage of a star's life. And then we have, what else do we have? What am I missing, Nestor? Oh, the deep field. How can I forget the deep field? So we have a deep field image that's all about galaxy evolution and then actually understanding the early universe. What's the difference between a, a nebula and a planetary nebula? Although planet is in the name, I think the planetary nebula is a star at the end of its life, right? It's not a planet. Right. Yes, it's, it's very confusing. It's like a misnomer because planetary nebula was just like a limitation of the technology we had at the time uh, where early astronomers were looking up at the sky and they're like, oh, this is like a fuzzy looking sphere. So it kind of looks like a planet. So we'll call it a planetary nebula. But you're right. It's a dying star that's just sort of ejected its outer layers. And so it has like this dust and gas around it. And then the larger nebulae are star forming regions. So that's where these young stars are forming. And Nestor, as Elisa said, these are young stars forming. Of course, they're not forming now. We're looking back in time because when we look into deep space, we're looking into deep time. How far back do these images capture? What are we looking at? The images that had to do with, you know, these star forming regions and this planetary nebula, for instance, they're all pretty nearby for a lifetime of a star. Uh, so, you know, stars live like, you know, thousands of millions of years. So for them, you know, a few hundred or even a thousand light years is not that much. But when it comes to uh, the deep field, for instance, that, that we're looking very, very, very back in time. And in fact, some of those galaxies were among, you know, the very first ones that were formed. So in that image, where you were seeing these very distant galaxies, for those ones you were really seeing back in time, I, I think the number is like 13.2 billion years. And remind us what a deep field image is, because we may know the, the term from the Hubble deep field. This is the web's first deep field. What is a deep field image? Yeah, so a deep field photo just starts to show these tiny points of light, which you think are stars, but actually these are tiny galaxies very far away. Um, and there's just thousands of them. So a deep field normally has thousands of these galaxies in this image, and it's usually across a very, very small point part of the sky. So for instance, for the deep field image for the web that we saw, that's actually just a grain of sand 
held out at arm's length. That's the patch of sky it covers. And you have thousands of galaxies in that tiny little grain of sand. So that's basically what you're looking at, is you're just trying to pick up these faint galaxies by just pointing the telescope at that patch of sky for a long time. Uh, Webb is remarkable because it's looking in the infrared. And Alisa, how you reacted to these nebula, I've seen the video and I heard you say there's so much structure. Now, as you said, we're looking at nebula, a lot of that is gas around a dying star. What do you mean that it has structure and how does an infrared camera help you see structure? Yeah, that's a great question. So infrared capability allows you to like zone in on the dust and that's really where the structure, I guess you could say is. And really when I say structure, I just mean there's like such a difference, such a contrast between the different filters and what than the light that they're collecting and what they're showing. And basically just the detail that Webb is able to pick up uh, in infrared because it is such a sensitive telescope. So things like the planetary nebula, you can't see that same structure in the planetary nebula or the southern ring that you could in Hubble because Hubble could not see that far into the infrared. And that's where you see all that sort of ejecta and structure that's happening. And that's one of the reasons that these, these images are so exciting because you can see things that were obscured that are obscured in visible light, for example. It's a diversity out there that our brains can process, but our instruments can. And I think that's beautiful. Like how we as humans imagine the world and have been able to go outside and look into depths that we are not able to see with our own brains, with our own eyes. I think that's that's marvelous. Can you clear up for us why these web images, and they are stunningly beautiful in their color, why they are in color? Because as we said, this is infrared, it's not visible light. Um, so they're colorized at some point, right? Where do those colors come from? Is that something that the art department does or where does it come from? Yes, so assigning colors is a balance between art and science. And so it does have scientific meaning in that we prescribe colors in what we call chromatic order, so that the shortest wavelength is blue and then the longest wavelength is red and in between is sort of green. And to sort of simplify it, that means if you take like three different filters at different parts of the spectrum, and we can, we can just visualize the visible spectrum for now, then there's a red part of the spectrum, a green part of the spectrum, a blue part of the spectrum. You take those wavelengths together to get your full color image, just like a, ca like a camera does. It works the same way where it's collecting light in these three different channels. And then we during the same thing uh, with web, it isn't infrared. So we are sort of applying like our best guess and we are using chromatic order still to represent something that we might see if we could see an infrared with web sensitivity. And this creation or this chromatic ordering not only emphasizes the different structure in each filter, which is what you want to see, it actually helps you understand and see what's physically happening, the processes that are happening in different wavelengths of light. Um, but it also just gives you a more organic, natural look of what you would see, what you're kind of used to when you're looking at maybe Hubble images or just visible images in general. The universe is a contrast of extremes, of incredible hot temperatures and then cold. And yet they're there together existing in the universe because, of course, in between the stars, you have some of the coldest regions of space. I wonder if there are processes, and, and Nestor, you've hinted at this, or you both have, or maybe you've actually said it directly, that there are processes that occur during star formation or during the death of stars, for that matter, that infrared cameras are particularly good at capturing. So when a star is forming, 
there's a lot of dust, there's a lot of stuff that's happening, and you can't see it unless you have the infrared cameras that are peering through what's inside. So although it's dusty and chaotic, in other words, the infrared wavelengths are still coming through, and that's what Webb is capturing. Yeah, so this whole point goes to star formation itself. So for star formation, like the ingredients that you need is like the main ingredients is like gas and dust. And the cool thing about dust is that it cools down the star. Because if you leave, like if you leave gas, like if you pop a balloon with helium, helium will go flowing and it will go away. It won't capture itself and form a star in your house, right? So out there, <laughs> good, good leave, to know. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Don't be afraid. Okay. If you leave out there like a ton of gas in the out in the open. The gas, because it has a ton of velocity, will just go away. It won't won't stick together. So this these big portions of gas to form stars, they need this dust to cool them off, to like constrain their energy, so that they can actually compress, so to speak, through gravity and form stars. So all this dust carries a ton of information, like how much you're forming, why did you form like you did. And, and that's it's like the basic ingredient and how 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 these stars get formed. So the, the ability of us being able to look at this with web to get like a you know a mapping of all this with incredible precision like the beautiful pictures that you're seeing but the beautiful data that it's also behind that it's impressive and yes it's going to teach us a ton about these extremes that you were talking about we need these extremes we need this hot gas and we also need this dust to stick together to form these stars right so it's it's fundamental to understand the process but Nestor, you just gave us a beautiful description of how stars are formed what can Webb teach us that you haven't just taught us right now? It sounds like scientists understand how stars form and they understand how galaxies form. Yeah, this is the general picture, but we don't understand. We don't really understand how stars <laughs> form, like to be completely honest, uh, because we understand this general picture, like what do you need? But what happens in the process or why, for instance, planetary systems like ours, like the sun form, like how common are they? Are like Earth-like planets common out there, for instance? Or are we like just a lucky alignment of dust and gas that form us here? We don't actually know. We, we don't have uh, a, a much, much information about that. And there's many, many details that define like planet and star formation is where this the devil really is in the details. Like you change one number there by a factor of 10 and that changes everything. So this is actually going to enable us to constrain this to, you know, unprecedented levels. So, so yeah, it's, it's super, super important. Then finally, it's my understanding that these first images from Webb were test images. You're testing out the camera, you're testing out the capabilities of this new instrument. When should we expect that Webb will produce regular results, if that's, if that's the way to put it? So I guess I could kind of say we were already doing that. There's some things in the works, um, like the Cartwheel Nebula was also a part of the early release program, but we have other science programs that are already are starting and we should have releases on those very soon. So that's, that's going to be a regular thing along with Hubble and it's going to just keep coming and it's going to break a lot of records <laughs> and be beautiful at the same time. Yeah, we have teams already working on this. I'm part of some of these teams. I'm working right now with four different teams in the science community with exoplanet data, for instance, on which we are converging. And this is a process. It's also a process, like the scientific process is a process of converging. It's like, I did this, did you get the same result? And comparing notes and learning together and we're learning how to use a new instrument. So I think you're gonna start seeing a flood of new results like next month already. 
Uh, so be prepared, you know, put on your seatbelts. It's going to be an amazing ride. We are prepared. So it sounds like you are converging the way that stellar dust converges to form a star. You are the scientists converging to form a new picture of the universe. Nestor Espinoza, thank you so much for joining us. And Elisa Pagan, thank you as well. What a delight to have you both on the show. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be here. Yes. Nestor Espinosa is an assistant astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute and a principal investigator for exoplanet atmospheric physics with the James Webb Space Telescope. Elisa Pagan is science visuals developer at the Space Telescope Science Institute. Seth, this is such a remarkable development. We've said it was 20 years in the making, and that's about the same length of time that it took to build the Hubble Space Telescope as well. Yeah, but after they finished building that and put it into space, uh, Hubble still required a visit by some astronaut repairmen to fix the optics. So far, James Webb doesn't seem to have any major problems. It's performing well. You know, fixing the optics on Hubble was a big deal. Yes, but in that case, as you said, the astronauts could get to the fix. If something happens with the James Webb telescope, it it will be very hard to fix. So we'll just have to live with it. But let's not talk about what could go wrong. We're just hearing about what is going so well. And, you know, the excitement of the scientists is really infectious, isn't it? It is, and I agree with you, we shouldn't tempt fate. Although that sounds a bit superstitious. You know, it occurred to me, Molly, the universe that we see in Star Trek and in other TV shows and in movies, you know, it just looks like a lot of monotonous, endless streams of stars zooming by the camera. But the galaxies and the nebulae snapped by James Webb, I mean, they're honestly spectacular. And you can see the stars and the galaxies and the nebula in high resolution. They become not individuals, in the sense that people are individuals, but they become whole separate worlds. Yeah, I I mean, you know, as an amateur astronomer, you don't see those so well. And James Webb is just showing you, you know, what's really out there. I I mean, it's just mind-blowing, as we've said. Well, big science projects require big science teams. More than a thousand people in 17 countries have developed the Webb Telescope, for example. There are principal investigators and flight operation teams, for example. But when you become senior project scientist, well, you're on the top overseeing it all. I'm John Mather. I'm the senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope here at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. We talk to Dr. Mather next in this episode of Big Picture Science that's taking a look at the web feet. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. (laughs) 
as we heard, the data are coming down from the James Webb Space Telescope. It's unfolded itself in its parking space about a million miles from Earth. And uh, the scientists are grabbing those data and analyzing them, trying to map out the history of the universe as it was shortly after the Big Bang. That's all part of a discipline called cosmology. Seth, what is the difference, speaking as an astronomer, what is the difference between cosmology and astronomy, and where do they overlap? Well, they do overlap, but simply speaking, cosmology is the history of the universe as a whole, whereas astronomy, I mean, you know, taking the name, uh, is the study of stars, how stars work, how, how they're born and die. So, you know, it's the big picture versus a, a somewhat smaller picture. But if the scientists are studying stars, the evolution of stars, the formation of galaxies, isn't that considered astronomy? And that is a big part of cosmology. Well, that's true. I mean, people who are cosmologists would be the first to also claim the title of astronomer. But I I think that this is, (laughs) it just has a long history here. And uh, the early astronomers didn't know much about cosmology at all. So they confined themselves to trying to figure out, you know, how the stars worked. But today, we try and figure out how the entire universe works. So the simple idea here is that if you can see the way the cosmos looked when it was very young, you know, a couple of hundred million years after the Big Bang, that's still young, then maybe we understand better how it developed into the cosmos that we see today. So a couple hundred million years after the Big Bang, as you said, the universe is still young. What was it? Was it all bunched up and then there was just empty space that it was waiting to fill with stars and galaxies and planets? Well, that's the kind of uh, view many people have, that, you know, there was this big empty space, and a big bang goes off, and it begins to fill it with stars, galaxies, and everything else. But, of course, the universe is also space. The universe created space. The big bang made space, and it's still making space, actually. So it's a little bit non-intuitive. So when you say, well, what was the universe before the Big Bang? Of course, nobody has a very good answer to that. And the idea is that we are trying to construct the history of the universe going back as far as we can up to that moment (laughs) that the universe began. Yes, all the way back. Yes, it turns out there's a limit to how far you can go back, but it's a it's a very <laughs> it's a good limit. You can go back to a tiny tiny fraction of a second after the big bang and still learn something. I mean, in some ways it's like doing archaeology by reconstructing the skeletons of ancient animals. We learn something about how life on earth evolved. Because as you said, as you look at anything in the sky, as you look at anything in deep space, you're looking back in time. Yeah, and not just in the sky, actually. When I look at you, Molly, I don't see you as you are now, but as you were a few billionths of a second ago. That's the time it takes light to bounce off you and reach my eyes. Well, I don't think I've changed much since then. At least I hope not. Yeah, probably not. But this effect can be largely ignored. I mean, even when you talk about looking at the other worlds of our solar system, you see the moon the way it was a second and a half ago. But when you look at Mars, you're seeing it as it was maybe 20 minutes ago. If you look at Pluto, you're looking at it the way it was hours ago. So there's actually an effect. But when the James Webb looks deep into the universe, well, obviously, you know, that's a a different matter. It will be looking most of the way back to the Big Bang, which occurred about 13 and a half billion years ago. So that's why cosmologists get excited about this telescope. Now, in order for the instrument to image the infrared glow from these objects in space, the telescope has to be kept at a very low temperature so its own glow doesn't interfere and doesn't uh, swamp its detectors. 
Webb's operating temperature is a chilly 7 degrees above absolute zero. That is minus 447 degrees Fahrenheit. Burr. Yes, and better than my freezer. Speaking of cooling, uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation is what we call the cooling afterglow of the Big Bang. Its discovery was a big deal. The cosmologists who made it, George Smoot and John Mather, earned the Nobel Prize for doing so in 2006. Today, Dr. Mather is the senior project scientist for NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, and he joins us now to give us the big picture about the new instrument. Okay, John, putting a telescope into space, that's not easy. Certainly not in comparison with putting one on, the, on a mountain in Hawaii or Chile. Why was the James Webb conceived as a space telescope? Well, number one, there are an awful lot of things you just can't do from the ground. Um, air is opaque at many wavelengths, uh, it glows at many wavelengths, and it's turbulent, so you get blurry images. And the upshot is um, only a tiny fraction of what astronomers know can be learned for, with telescopes on the ground. It's great when you can do them, but they're only so good. Its location is also a little bit singular. A million miles away, behind the moon, I mean, you know, uh, that was presumably done for good reasons as well. Yeah, we put it around a place called the Sun-Earth Lagrange Point, which is uh, four times as far away as the moon, and so it's not really behind the moon, but it is overhead at midnight every day, every night. And we put it there because uh, from that place, the telescope doesn't get any farther away from the Earth, so we can keep in good touch with it. And we can also put up a one-sided umbrella, a sunshade, we call it, to keep the telescope cold. That'll protect us from the heat of the sun, the Earth, and the moon all at once. So it's, it's kind of a, a deep freeze point in nearby space. It really is. It's a perfect spot for this. Okay. What James Webb, I think contrary to the impression that some people have, it's not really a replacement for the Hubble Space Telescope. It's more of a complementary bit of hardware, right? I mean, it sees infrared light rather than visible light, as Hubble does. Why build an infrared telescope? Well, we want to see things you can't see with the visible light. Um, so things that are too far away, because the expanding universe stretches out the light of the most distant galaxies into the infrared. Uh, things that are too cold to send out their visible light, so you just can't see them at all uh, with a visible light telescope. Or um, things that are hidden in dust clouds. So those beautiful clouds where stars are being born today, well, they're opaque for visible light, and they're somewhat transparent for infrared. So we can see inside where stars are being born now with their planets. Okay, well, you know, the first JWST image that was released to the public, I believe, made a big impression on me. It was a deep field photo, a picture of a tiny patch of sky, completely ordinary, but the photo showed a myriad of distant galaxies. Roughly how much farther are the objects in this picture than a deep field photo from Hubble? Well, it's, it's really tricky to explain in numbers, but uh, we're able to see uh, farther back in time, closer to the Big Bang. So Hubble was able to see a fair number of objects that are maybe a billion years after the Big Bang. And now we're getting hints that we're seeing within two or three hundred million. So two or three times closer to the Big Bang is the sort of time coordinate. This is kind of looking at uh, baby photos of my brother, right? I, I can see his history by getting a snapshot from the no, close to the beginning. Yes, we are looking um, back as far as we can, but we're, of course, are, a lot of us are more interested in our own story 
you know, but we can't see our own story by looking back in time because it's all been erased. Uh, we can see other galaxies' story by looking far back in time. So we try to say, well, maybe that galaxy over there is similar to ours and has a similar history to ours. So if we can work out that story, then we maybe have our own story. Yeah, it's, it sounds like if, if, if I can't get photos of my brother as a baby, maybe I can get, you know, the neighbor's kid as a baby and learn something from that. That's exactly it. Well, let's talk a little bit about how this telescope works. In some ways, it's a 400-year-old design with a curved mirror focusing an image on a detector. But the mirror for James Webb is not a single hunk of glass. It, it seems to be a, you know, a, a collection of smaller mirrors. Absolutely. Well, we, we made it out of 18 pieces of beryllium. Uh, beryllium because it's light and stiff and uh, keeps its shape when it cools down. Uh, and it's coated with gold, a very thin layer, but enough to make it the best infrared reflector we can get. So uh, now you say, well, what are you going to do with 18 little mirrors that are not really the mirror you wanted? So each of them is on motors to adjust the position and a little bit of the shape so that after we work on it for a while, it is very close to the shape we wanted to have. You're suggesting that basically you have 18 telescopes and you're trying to combine the image from those 18 telescopes into one, right? That's absolutely right. And so we don't just make it 18 times brighter. We also make it sharper uh, because we do something that's called phasing the telescope. All the mirrors have to have focused so well that the, all the waves come in at exactly the right time to match when they arrive at the same focal point. So that's called phasing, and that's why it gives a sharper image as well as a brighter one. One of the big questions to be addressed by Webb is when the expansion of the universe started to speed up, somebody is, or something has put a foot on the accelerator, and the universe is blowing up faster all the time. We refer to the cause of this acceleration as dark energy, but that doesn't tell me terribly much. Do you have any idea what dark energy might be, and, and will James Webb help clue us in? Well, honestly, I don't have any better idea than you do. Um, this was a big surprise for most physicists and astronomers. There's no uh, prediction um, that says it's supposed to be there uh, based on some uh, more generic theory. So it's an observational fact, and that's about it. We call it dark energy. Uh, we should call it transparent because it's not even absorbing. It's completely transparent. The only thing that we know of that it does is it causes this acceleration. And beyond that, we are completely baffled and maybe... Uh, Future generations may actually have a guess or a theory that predicts that it must be so, but it was a big surprise for almost everybody. Yeah, I think most people were expecting that eventually the expanding universe would kind of come to a stop and then maybe, you know, implode or just start, you know, just expand slower and slower, not faster and faster. That's certainly right. Uh, it was a prejudice, clearly wrong, but most people thought, well, surely we didn't ask for that, so it must not be. So it tells us that uh, our understanding and our opinion has very little effect on the rest of the universe. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of distressed to hear that. What, what about the search for extraterrestrial life? Uh, James Webb might be able to help us there. We certainly are going to be doing what we can. Uh, number one, we'll be looking at planets around other stars uh, to see are any of them at all like Earth. So we have a big catalog of planets of the right size and temperature that go in front of their stars from time to time. It's called transiting. So we will be watching when they do that, and we will look to see if there's any sign that they have an atmosphere. And if there is an atmosphere, does it have signs of any molecules that we care about, such as water? 
So that's coming right up. Um, I think the Trappist system is already uh, scheduled right soon. Tricky thing about those is uh, hardly anyone expects those planets to be very much like home because they orbit around very hostile little stars called M stars, which are always blasting away with stellar storms of ionized plasma high-energy particles, which um, certainly would have a lot of effect on the atmosphere of such a planet, which isn't to say that there wouldn't be an atmosphere or that there wouldn't be some other form of life under the surface, um, but it's not going to be like Earth, probably. So we'll also be looking to see, well, the bigger planets, are they anything that, like the solar system? And that's a tricky, interesting question also, because so far we have not found any systems that I know of that are like the solar system, where we have four little rocky planets in the middle, two of them with serious atmospheres, one like us, and the Venus with a lot more air, and um, then maybe a gap where the asteroid belt is, and then four very chilly giant planets farther out. There's nothing like that yet in the record of what we found. Just curious, John. Suppose the James Webb Space Telescope looks at 100 exoplanets and finds none that seem to suggest the presence of biology. Would that be a serious downer, in your opinion? Uh, well, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised, because the only ones that we really can study well are the little ones around M stars, the, the hostile stars. So it could just be that none of them have air. Then we would never know if they're alive. doesn't mean they're not alive, just you can't see it from here. So um, that means you have to go on to the next challenge, which is observe planets that could be more like home, Earth-sized planets orbiting sun-like stars, which are much less hostile. And so um, that calls for the next observatory, whatever it is we're going to call it. Um, National Academy of Sciences says that's what we want. Uh, that's the, a really hard challenge that we need a telescope at least as big as the web, but much more accurate. So we can block out the starlight from the image and uh, and see the actual image of a little dot orbiting around that star and then get, get the chemical analysis of that atmosphere. So that's much harder, but also will be much more informative. Well, finally, John, is there any particular object in the cosmos that you're personally interested in subjecting to James Webb's gaze? Well, actually, the ones I'm most interested in are the ones that are surprised because we don't even know they're there yet. So <laughs> the things where I think will be most interesting are, to me as a sort of historically cosmological person uh, would be the very first objects to add that grew after the Big Bang. So every day now there's another claim of an even more distant object farther back in time, closer to the Big Bang and in history, one of the big challenges is almost every big galaxy has a whopping supermassive black hole in the middle. And uh, calculation does not tell us how that could have happened. Uh, we are annoyed with this inability to explain ourselves. We know they're there. We can't explain how they grew so big so fast. So could they have formed by some rare but possible process in the early universe where uh, by the time the first galaxies showed up, there were already big black holes? Well, maybe. Well, let's look. So this is, you know, astronomy is an observational science, and, and so we've been surprised all the time. It's sort of like biology. You just have to go look and see what's out there, and then figure it out afterwards. John Mather, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Seth, it's a pleasure talking with you, and uh, wish us well on our adventures. John Mather is a senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. He won a Nobel Prize in 2006 for his co-discovery of cosmic microwave background radiation.
Well, such a big telescope, such a long waiting list to use it. We'll talk to one astronomer who has already bagged some observing time on the Webb telescope. He wants it to study dust. There's a lot of dust in the universe, Molly. <laughs> There's a lot of dust in our studio, Seth. Yeah, yeah, but it's not primordial dust. And in fact, uh, we're made from some of that primordial dust, and we'll learn how next. This episode of Big Picture Science is looking at the web feet. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The James Webb Telescope is, of course, in space, and the instruments are accessible from Earth. Now, you have to book time to use this instrument, and scientists are excitingly lining up to do just that, booking time on the telescope, but it's highly competitive. One astronomer, however, has planned ahead, and he has already secured time on the James Webb. Then I'm super excited. It's working better than expected, and it's just an amazing technological feat. Hi, I'm Alex Filipenko, a professor of astronomy at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Filipenko wants to use the telescope to study something that the underside of your living room couch has in common with the origin of the universe. And we spoke to him from the open spaces of the Berkeley campus. I'm a co-investigator on a couple of projects in the first year to study the formation of dust in the ejected gases of exploding stars called supernovae, and also studies of dust in the gases that were expelled by those massive stars prior to their final titanic acts of self-destruction. When, when you say dust, I think of the sort of stuff I'm, I'm forced to, you know, brush out of the corners of my house here. But, uh, you know, that dust is important, is it not? It sure is. By dust, we mean fine little particles of carbon and silicon and other heavy elements that were produced from the elements that uh, were made by the star during its normal life and during its explosive death. And those fine little particles collect up in giant clouds of gas and dust which then become gravitationally unstable and they can collapse forming a cluster of new stars and planets orbiting those stars. And so we think our own solar system formed in a cluster of stars from a cloud of gas and dust about four and a half billion years ago. Is it the case that, you know, when I dig uh, some, I don't know, metal out of the ground here for our high-tech lifestyle, that I'm digging up old dust that was produced by these stars? Is that possible? Oh, absolutely. You know, all of the heavy elements, other than a little bit of lithium in the universe, were produced by nuclear reactions in stars. 
So we are actually made of this stardust, and all the dust around you is as well. Okay, so what you're saying is to understand the history of the universe, we really have to look back in time. And I guess uh, astronomy is one of, I, as far as I know, it's the only discipline we have here that allows us to look back in time directly. Yeah, well, you know, light is a wonderful time machine in a sense. You know, it doesn't travel infinitely fast. It travels about a foot per nanosecond. So, you know, at that speed, we're seeing the sun as it was about eight and one third minutes ago. And the nearest stars that you see are some tens or hundreds of light years away. And so you're seeing them as they were tens or hundreds of years ago. But if you look at galaxies that are billions of light years away, you're seeing them as they were billions of years ago. And indeed, we get a movie of the past history of the universe. The closest thing I can think of is that in geology, of course, you have the various layers of Earth that you see in the Grand Canyon. And so, you know, people can go back to 66 million years ago and see that the, the dinosaur bones suddenly stop, you know, and you can go back 200 million years and see other dinosaur bones and stuff. And so in geology and paleontology, we do get a, a history of Earth. But through the non-infinite speed of light, we can get a history of the entire universe. And that's really fantastic. Alex, can you give us some idea of how one observes with the James Webb? I mean, starting with how you get time on the telescope. Yeah, it's really hard. You know, once a year, we'll submit proposals. And I think in the first round, there were something like five to ten times as many proposals compared to what could be accommodated in that first year. So they're competitively chosen. You have to articulate what it is you want to do, why you want to do it, why it can't be done from the ground, how your team has the necessary expertise to do it, and so on and so forth. But of course, everyone and their grandmother wants time, and they're going to spend a lot of effort writing these proposals and polishing them. So it's very difficult to get that time. And I feel very fortunate that I'm on two programs in the first year that, that actually managed to secure time. How, how much time, typically? What are you talking about? Hours, days, weeks, months? Yeah, it's it's of order hours to days, depending on the faintness of the objects that you want to observe. In fact, the first photograph released by NASA, I believe on Monday, July 11th, was of a field of galaxies containing a, a cluster and a bunch of gravitationally lensed galaxies. And that image took, I believe, a total of 12 and a half hours. So that's a pretty good allocation of time for that first image. Some images, I'm sure, will take several days because astronomers want to see the very first galaxies to have formed and maybe even the first stars. And for that, you'll need several days. But for the projects I'm on, I believe we have a couple of hours. I see. Well, can you, can you elaborate a bit on seeing those first stars in the universe? I mean, they... They weren't exactly cousins of our own sun, were they? No, probably not. They were much more massive because it turns out that when the universe was devoid of heavy elements, when it only had hydrogen and helium, uh, it's more likely that the initial stars were more massive than the sun. And then they blew up and they, you know, formed some heavy elements and then uh, that process repeated itself many times. 
Those stars being massive are quite luminous. They're quite powerful. Nevertheless, to see individual stars rather than galaxies, we probably will need to rely on some of those stars being gravitationally lensed by intervening galaxies and clusters of galaxies, making them brighter. So, you know, nature provides this amazing cosmic telescope through gravitational lensing. And you can see that in that July 11th image of the cluster of galaxies, gravitationally lensing background galaxies that are more distant. Is that is that why they look curved? Yeah, they look curved because the warping of space-time distorts their shape, but it also magnifies their brightness. And so, in a sense, it, it makes them more easily visible than if we didn't have this gigantic telescope, this cosmic telescope between us and them. We've spoken about what James Webb can do to look into the dusty birthplaces of stars, to look back in time to give us sort of a chronology of how the universe evolved. Are there any other, you know, really big questions that you foresee the James Webb providing answers for? Oh, absolutely. And this already we saw a prelude of on July 12th when NASA released a spectrum where you you know you spread the light out into a rainbow and you measure the brightness as a function of color or wavelength. Anyway, they showed the spectrum of a planet orbiting a star about 1150 light years away. It's a star known as WASP 95 and the exoplanet is WASP 95b and that infrared spectrum revealed the unmistakable signature of water molecules in the atmosphere. Now, that's very interesting because, you know, astrobiologists have this mantra, we follow the water, right? Life on Earth is based on water, at least now. Maybe in the future we'll have, you know, AI and silicon-based robots and computers that are better than we are and will be our evolutionary descendants. But at least all naturally occurring life on Earth is based on water. So those kind of planets then would be of interest to study in greater detail to look for even better biosignatures. For example, the simultaneous presence of oxygen and methane molecules would be very exciting because methane oxidizes very quickly. So if you see methane in an atmosphere with oxygen, there must be some reasonably continuous supply of that methane. And although methane can be produced by geologic processes that have nothing to do with biology, it is also produced by biological processes, in particular associated with decay. So the decay of dying animals or, you know, in your digestive tract or whatever, it produces methane. And so that signature would be very, very exciting in the atmosphere of a planet. So, so it's conceivable that James Webb may be the first to discover life beyond Earth. Yeah, signatures of life. You know, so if we were to see, for example, this simultaneous presence of methane and oxygen, again, that, that wouldn't be a slam dunk, but it would then be a planet that we would concentrate our efforts on in other studies, you know, at radio wavelengths or, or deeper James Webb um, images and spectra, and then images with large ground-based telescopes and whatnot in order to try to find unmistakable signatures of life that can't be interpreted in ways that are not of biological origin. It seems to me that every time we build a new telescope, we find things that we simply had not anticipated, things that hadn't occurred to us even in our imaginations. Any bets on whether James Webb will do the same? 
Absolutely, Seth. It has always been the case that new telescopes discover new unanticipated phenomena. And indeed, sometimes those results are actually more exciting than the planned projects uh, for which the telescope was built. You know, one good example in my own career was the discovery of the accelerating expansion of the universe, which we did with the Keck telescopes in Hawaii and the Hubble Space Telescope and other ground-based telescopes. And no one really anticipated that. So that was more exciting than what the Hubble and these ground-based telescopes were built for. So I have very little doubt that the web will find things that we did not propose the web to be built for. <laughs> It's what you don't expect, as you say, that's often the most exciting thing. Well, Alex Filipenko, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Well, thank you, Seth. It's been a pleasure. Alex Filipenko is professor of astronomy at the University of California, Berkeley. I found it particularly interesting when Professor Filipenko mentioned that the most intriguing discoveries that the James Webb could make are things that we can't even foresee. And he gives his own profound personal example of the discovery that the universe was not just expanding, but accelerating in its expansion. There's a long history here, Molly. I mean, you could go all the way back to the first telescope ever pointed at the skies in 1609 by Galileo, and he found the four moons of Jupiter, and that had a profound effect. If you're the first on the scene, it counts for a lot. Well, Seth, is there any anything like this in SETI when you use the the radio telescopes, you employ these instruments, and then you make a surprise discovery? I fully anticipated that, Molly, because nobody had looked at the sky with the kind of instruments we use for SETI, where we're sensitive to certain kinds of radio emissions, narrowband emissions. And so I thought, okay, we're going to find something. You know, it may not be ET, but something that's natural. And so far, that hasn't been the case. A bit to my surprise. And to be clear, the radio telescopes that you use for SETI, for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, are not optical telescopes. It's not the same as Hubble or Webb. No, they, they have big mirrors, but they're, they're metal mirrors designed to reflect radio waves. So, you know, they got lots of little holes in them and so forth. They wouldn't be very useful for uh, shaving in the morning in case you do that because you couldn't get a really good image of your face. But they're perfect for radio waves. Well, Seth, that brings us to the big question here, which is, in this case, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a curveball. We've heard a lot about the James Webb. We know the instrument is up there. It's turning out these fantastic images of the universe. We're going to learn a lot. But I wonder, for you as an astronomer, is there something that you find particularly interesting about the James Webb's proposed observations, for you in particular? Well, of course, you know, I suppose the thing that most interests me is its study of galaxies, because that was my line of work for quite a while. And galaxies are, you know, they're big, and they have structure. They're not like stars, which are, you know, essentially points of light. So, uh, you know, f uh, one of the photos that has been released at the beginning here of the release of photos from uh, James Webb is one of a group of galaxies called Stefan's Quintet. And I can tell you, Molly, I spent two years writing papers about Stefan's Quintet. And if I had had a photo that good, uh, those papers would have been a lot easier to write. What's the most important thing that we need to know about Stefan's Quartet? Well, exactly, that it is a quartet, and the fifth galaxy is way in front of it, unlike what some astronomers were claiming. Stefan's Quintet is not a quintet, it's a quartet. Yep. 
I hope that doesn't affect our harmony. Well, you know, at the end of your interview with Dr. Mather, he said, wish us the best on our future endeavors, and, and certainly we do. So we wish the whole James Webb science team and the operations team and the senior project scientists the very best on this exciting endeavor. This show would not be possible without the production feats of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose efforts include exploration of the cosmos. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostek. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science that considers NASA's newest telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, is called Webb Feet. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.